You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Elizabeth Luz is a veteran of the United States Navy who served during Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. An analyst and a linguist by training, she now practices law in Seattle. Her new novel is Little Falls. Thank you for joining me, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Rick. Really appreciate the invitation. This is a fascinating book on so many levels. When we first encountered it, it seems very straightforward and very simple. And then rapidly unfolds into a very complicated story where there are two kinds of mysteries. There's a, a mystery of what has happened in terms mm-hmm. of, of with a murder, but also there's a mystery of who exactly the character is mm-hmm. and, and, and who, why she makes the kind of decision she does. And as it goes along, the revelations are really fascinating. And, and, and it's clear she's a veteran and I'd like you to talk about revealing the character. And as a writer, when did you start like creating a character about like this? And is how much of this of you is in this character? <laughs> Great question. Um, so, so Camille, as as a main character, came to me quite a while ago. Um, I had gotten an idea for a story about a property tax inspector tax lawyer I do these things from time to time <clears throat> um but i didn't want to tell a story about a guy i had done that before and it didn't really like it um and and it occurred to me that frankly one of the things that i was missing in a lot of fiction was really credible stories and, and complicated stories about women veterans um we are sort of a, an interesting <laughs> category of people um <clears throat> As you say, this, the story started out a little bit simple, and then it quickly gets very complicated. That's because women veterans are, are rather complicated, right? Um, I imagine yeah. so. Um, and so I think um, as far as – so your first question was really about sort of revealing the character. Um, <clears throat> Camille has experienced a lot of trauma, um, and so folks who have experienced trauma – particularly in a combat situation, they often um, sort of uh, separate uh, various aspects of their personality and their experiences into sort of different boxes in their heads. It's one way to to reduce some of the PTSD symptoms. Um, this is uh, what's called compartmentalization. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, and so, um, so Camille, like, like many veterans, has done a pretty good job of putting up walls in her head. Um, but, but like many folks who experience PTSD, there can be triggering events and so forth that, that bring some of those experiences back to light and can make it difficult for them to cope, but it can also sort of help them put things together if it's done helpfully, usually with the guidance, uh, which Camille didn't have, unfortunately. Um, as far as, you know, sort of your last question was how much of me is, is there in Camille? Um. There, there's, there's bits and pieces, but um, unlike, Camille, unlike Camille, I never served in a combat zone. I was in during Iraq and Afghanistan, but I was a linguist, um, so I was, I was well behind walls. Um, <laughs> but, um, 
but while I was in the military, I knew quite a few people who had actually gone into combat and, and since getting out have, have intentionally formed relationships with folks, other veterans, right? Um, because, you know, sort of like all tracks like. Um, and in, in learning stories about friends and, and colleagues and associates, um, a lot of the, um, a lot of Camille is sort of a patchwork of me and also other veterans that I know. Um, but there, there are a lot of parts of me and Camille, uh, you know, obviously I, I am a veteran, although I was not in a combat zone, the military is very much a total institution, right? It gets into your blood mm-hmm. um, and it gets into your head and it's impossible to get it out. Um, and like Camille and many other women veterans, I experienced very much sort of the, 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 the dichotomy, frankly, of being a woman in the military and how you're expected to be a warrior, you're expected to be a soldier or a sailor or a marine or whatever. Um, and that's that's very much a very specific role. But but you're also a woman, um, which is it kind of throws people for a loop sometimes. Um, and it can create um, a lot of additional stress for women in the military. I mean, um, you know, Vanessa Guillen is obviously on a lot of people's minds these days. And while not every woman in the military is raped or experiences sexual harassment, even, um, you know, there are a lot of instances where it's difficult for women to be both a soldier and a female. Um, and, and that, that part of Camille's personality very much is me. Um, and I think it is a lot of women veterans, frankly. You said you were a linguist and not in open combat. But right. what I, I was thinking was that even so, you are in a landscape that is unimaginable to most people who have never been near warfare. And, right. and I feel like that kind of intensity of that world, it's like being on the very edge of an explosion that that has to really color your perception even of the most mundane tasks sitting in front of a computer or you know trying to translate this or that talk about how just the proximity of warfare informs mm-hmm. your vision both of warfare itself but also when you return because uh, this book takes place back in you know the the uh pretty cozy, nice little town. It's called Little Falls. I, I'm guessing it, it's somewhere in Oregon. So talk about how the proximity of war affects your vision of war and of peace. Sure. Um, so full disclosure, I was not in Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm. Um, and so a lot of that part of the book um, comes from conversations that I've had with people who were there. Um, and a lot of those those psychological um, considerations, the proximity, the fear, the constant um, being in a constant state of arousal, psychological arousal, right? Because you're always worried about, you know, is is a grenade going to come in? Is a mortar going to come in? Um, do we need to be worried about um, one of the walls in the green zone being breached? Do we need to worry about having a massive casualty event and having the hospital be flooded with injured? Um, that is very much um, 
taken from conversations and research that I did. Um, speaking, I, I actually credited quite a few of these people in the acknowledgments. Um, a, a very good personal friend of mine who was also a linguist, but he was deployed, um, a, as well as some folks in leadership in the Army um, Medical Corps and Nursing Corps. Um, because those psychological things can't be faked, right? They can be written about, but they can't be faked. Um, and that 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 fear and constant state of of psychological arousal really um, is is so intrinsic to being a veteran. So so as someone who wasn't deployed, um, you have an element of that, right? Because you're trained to. You're mm-hmm. trained to always be on alert. Even as a linguist, even sitting in front of a computer, I, I, I was trained to constantly be on the lookout for a threat, to constantly be thinking about, well, if they do this, then what do we need to do to adapt? What do we need to do to, um, to solve this problem? What do we need to do to react if we really have to? Um, and so you have to be constantly aware, even if, you know, I was lucky enough to not be constantly worried about an M16 at my back. Right. Um, so, so, so that aspect, that part of the training all veterans have, um, being in a war zone, however, um, is unique. Um, and it was difficult to bring that out in Camille in the book because, um, it, it can be so, it can be done in a way that makes it seem cheap and, 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 and sensationalist. And, and I was very concerned when writing Camille's character and writing about her experiences, I was very concerned to try to do justice to the reality of, of being in a war zone and, and not being able to turn that off and, and not being able to get that out of your head ever. Um, and so, for example, there's a, there's a scene about halfway through the book where there's an explosion outside Camille's truck is, um, has a problem <laughs> uh, and we, that we won't go into a whole lot, but, um, and it wakes Camille up in the middle of the night and she's immediately in a war zone. Um, that seems actually based on something not, it's it not as sensationalist, but, um, something similar that a friend experienced once and how, you know, he, this was a man actually, he, he woke up in the middle of the night for whatever reason and had had this horrible, horrible dream. And it was like, he was still in Iraq. He like, it it didn't matter that he was at home in his own bed in the United States. It was like he was in Iraq and it it took a while for him to actually snap out of it, so to speak. Um, So, so trying to take those, those real events and do justice to them, I think is, is something that has to be done delicately. Um, And so I guess just as one last point, in in writing Little Falls and getting it to the state in which, you know, it's in hardback now, um, I was very careful about making sure that I had friends read the book and tell me whether or not it worked. I think the highest compliment I ever got was from a good friend of mine who was deployed a couple of times, and he was like, I almost can't read this. It's too real. So... Um, so that was, that was a really high compliment for me. You know, I, I, I was thinking one of the real pleasures of, of reading this book 
is working through the two plot threads. There's the things that Camille is experiencing on her return and the mysteries she's trying to solve as a county tax inspector. But there's also for the reader the plot of how you unfoldingly reveal the depths of Camille's compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. And I think that that those two create a really great kind of tension that that propels the reading. Uh, it, it's you know one of the I think the cell lines of this book is you know evil in a small town, and it's there's you know as a veteran reader of horror novels, I I, I kind of expected almost a, a supernatural element, but hmm. I, I I to a degree you actually in a sense su- supply that in terms of the experience of fear and the experience of going through the things that we create for ourselves, the, the roadblocks we put in our own way that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. she puts in her own way to oh, yeah. that keep you from getting to the next part of your own story or in this case her story. I, I think that you do a good job. Could you talk about um creating those two plots were they separate in your mind or did one kind of inform the other as you wrote it's interesting um and that's a really interesting question so when i first started writing the book i I knew what the current day story was and i remember sitting at my desk one day and like almost banging my head against the wall of like why is she looking into this kid's murder it doesn't make any sense why would she do this um and then it occurred to me well we we do put things in our own way and one of the things that we put into our own way is is done through coping right when we experience extreme events we often we don't really remember them sometimes sometimes we we specifically compartmentalize them and put them back into a box in our heads that we absolutely don't remember um and so um it occurred to me that you know there are things that that happen um, when we're in extreme situations that, that we don't know how to deal with. And then when we experience events later on in life that remind us of them or that, or that, um, or that bring them up, um, then, then we have to deal with them we have to process them and hopefully get better. Right. And so it occurred to me that when folks are in a combat zone, a lot of strange things happen. Uh, it's not, war is not straightforward. Um, it is not something that you can just pick apart and um, and say that it's always going to happen this way it's, and this is never going to happen. Strange things happen. And so it occurred to me, well, if Camille had seen something similar or experienced a similar trauma, then that would drive her and she wouldn't necessarily know why. And so it occurred to me sort of out of the blue, wait a minute. She's experienced something. Some she has experienced something similar, where she has discovered something, and she's not getting any support from her command, which is frankly not that uncommon. Um, and she's not being allowed to go with her gut and figure out what happened. And well, what if? What if she was put into command somewhere and she had people under her and something happened to one of those people, she would feel very, very responsible and feel very driven. So if, if something like this were to happen before, it would very much consume her, even though she wouldn't be able to determine why. 
And so it, it sort of came in a flash that, well, this must have been someone who she cared about, but also someone she felt responsible for. And so at that point, once I had figured that out intellectually, it, it just sort of started to tumble. The, the two stories twined together, just sort of to tumble out of my head. It was almost like I couldn't write fast enough. Um, so I, I really love the way this, the, your prose in this book, because it kind of goes back and forth between these kind of lovely descriptions of this rural landscape and, and then your character's incredible, you know, inner um, turmoil and inner experience of the war. Talk about uh, Little Falls as a town and as a setting sure. and using this beautiful landscape. I, I assume that this is informed by your experiences in Oregon. Um, actually, Washington. Oh, Washington. So Okanagan County is on eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, it borders the Canadian border at the north end. And then um, much of the county is actually um, the Colville Reservation. So, and it, it's actually, it's a beautiful area. Tons of orchards. Um, and then obviously runs up into the mountains. There are lots of trees and, and the Columbia River runs through it too. Um, so I think... As far as location is concerned, right, Okanagan County holds a special place in my heart. I, um, it's just, it's this beautiful place. It, it's one of those few places where I feel really at home. Um, I've, I spent quite a bit of time out there doing research for the book and, and jump at every chance I get to go back, frankly. Um, Rural areas, you know, obviously a lot of veterans come from rural areas, right? Um, you know, folks join the military for a lot of different reasons, um, whether it's whether it's pride in country or whether it's because it's a good job or whether it's a tradition or what have you. But one thing that I've noticed, too, is that a lot of veterans end up in the country, whether they're from there or not. Um, and there are different reasons for that, right? Um, but one of, the, one of the folks I know who's um, actually a Vietnam veteran, um, he has over the years gone back and forth between the country and he's always happiest in the country because it reduces the number of, or the amount of, um, sort of input, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you've probably heard of the cup theory where folks who have experienced, um, trauma or PTSD, um, they, their cups generally are more full than Mm. other folks who haven't experienced trauma. And so there's only so much input they can take on a daily basis before their cup overflows. Um, And so the country, (laughs) idyllic though it may or may not be, um, it it can be easier for people to cope, uh, frankly. Um, And so so I knew that it needed to be a rural location. Um, And of course, Okanagan just made a lot of sense. I have a, a good friend who has a hunting cabin out there. So... Um, I had heard a lot of his stories and then gone out there myself. I was like, this is the place. <laughs> um, and I would really, I would really strongly urge anyone to go out there. It's gorgeous country. It's near Lake Chelan, which also features in the book. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really lovely place. You know, uh, I think one of the aspects of this book that really makes it a super interesting and compelling book is your vision of the the crime because it 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 seems 
like everything else, it seems deceptively simple and, and maybe a little low key at first, but it mm-hmm. it escalates very nicely. So when you created this this uh, the crime part of the, of your story. Did you know what it was going to be, or did you just explore it and say, okay, here I am? The vision of the victim came to me pretty early on. I'm one of those weird writers where I can't really write until I can see it and I can hear the characters. Mm -hmm. And so I turned stories over in my head for a long time before I even put pen to paper. Um, And so the, the vision of what happened was pretty early now exactly what happened where all the threads were took some time and and really a lot of thought as in order to get those revelations really um i think there are a couple of things about the crime that were important to me once i sort once they sort of occurred let me put it that way one is that you know we it, it drives me crazy when i read books that are either totally idealizing a place, whether that's the country or the city, or also um, like just uh, take a sensationalist approach or, or use tropes or what have you. Um, and so I, I wanted to point out that like, look, um, we have we have places in America that have a lot of problems, right? Um, and, and some of those are, are rural areas, right? Whether it's jobs or whether it's, meth in this book right um or or whether it's um other sorts of um act other sorts of sort of social issues where you've got um people who want to impose certain roles like on camille there's an inner there's a an experience with uh, an older woman who knew her father or this older woman is like oh well you should have married Sophie's daddy and Sophie is the daughter and you, you should have, you should have done all these different things with your life. You should have settled down, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's kind of a, a weird thing to hear to someone like me who was raised in a city, but it happens all the time. I have family in Kentucky and almost every time I go back there, they're shocked that like I have two small children and I work a full-time job and all this stuff. Um, it, it's just it's very strange to hear some of those things that um, impose roles on on women in particular. Um, and then as far as the but the going back to the crime, I, you know, I mentioned that um, we have had problems in this country with um, drug abuse and drug trafficking, but I think a lot of those stories, with the exception of perhaps Breaking Bad happen in cities but that that really ignores a lot of the problem um we do have um issues in places like okanagan county and and other places where we have rashes of crime and we have we have drug trafficking and things like that and so i think um trying to deal with that at least semi-realistically like no book is really that realistic right um (laughs) but at least semi-realistically was important to me one of the core drivers of this story is the relationship between Camille and her daughter, Sophie. Yes, yes. And I think you do that really well. So talk, talk about uh, creating Sophie as a full and realized character. And mm-hmm. I think what what's interesting to me is that 
as adults, we don't expect children to play much of a part. Mm-hmm. And yet they yeah. always do, and they can play more, much more than we... There's a lot more going on with our kids than we ever really assess to until it's far too late. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Um, so my mother bought five copies of the book. <laughs> and and has been very supportive on, on Facebook also. <laughs> um, and when she presented me with her copy and asked me to inscribe it, I wrote, Dear Mommy, it wasn't your fault. <laughs> um, uh, which she finds endlessly fascinating. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I think there are a couple of things about the relationship with Sophie and Camille. One, um, I was not a terrible teenager, but I wasn't easy to live with either. And I had very distinct ideas about what a teenager should and should not be able to do. Um, Sophie. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they all do. That's probably the understatement of the century, right? Um, So um, Sophie has been left alone, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I mentioned Camille left when Sophie was a baby. There are reasons for that um, that I hope to explore maybe in another book. Um, But she left, she enlisted. And so, and, and then because of her rating, she was a medic. She promptly experienced deployment and a lot of psychological trauma. And so by the time she came back, um, after her mother died, um, Sophie was five or six and Camille was in no position to be a nurturing mother. Um, and so Sophie stayed with her dad, with Camille's dad. And so Sophie's very much been left alone. And, and that can be difficult for a kid to process, um, particularly when the parent's actually there but not really present. <clears throat> and so that abandonment, frankly, I mean, that's really what it was, um, is something that can leave a big impression on kids even when adults don't realize it or the adults don't realize that a functional abandonment has occurred. So, for example, my mother's going to hate me for saying this, but my mom remarried when I was nine, and my stepdad's a great guy. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, um, you know, that that process of divorce and remarriage and splitting up time and so forth, and I had it good. Don't get me wrong. I had it good. Um, that That can be really difficult for a lot of kids to process, and so sort of processing Sophie's anger towards her mother was actually a little cathartic to me, for me, um, because it it allows for that sort of feeling of abandonment to be directed. And Sophie is very much directing that anger at her mother. There's no question about it. The other thing about the relationship, though, um, was so my first child was born right as I finished the first draft of Little Falls. A few years back and a lot of the relationship between Sophie and Camille was my absolute terror <laughs> absolute terror <laughs> about becoming a mother and and how was I going to process this and and how how can a mother really function well with her child um, and and bring up her child in such a way that this doesn't happen <laughs> um, but but going back to the whole the whole concept of being a woman veteran, you know, even though I wasn't in combat, um, I, I was in the military. And like I said, it gets into your head. 
And so I, I, I to this day, am very rules oriented mm. and, and very much black and white. Um, and that's partly my personality. And it's partly the military. Um, and so I, you know, there are definite moments when I'm like, I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. I, it is, it, this doesn't make sense. I don't have training for this. I don't have a protocol. It, it just doesn't compute. All mothers feel that way. All parents do. Mm-hmm. But I think in talking with other vets, it can be particularly pronounced for us because it gets into your head that, you know, there just there are repercussions and there are consequences and it, you just go with that. Um, but kids are a different beast, right? That, that's not really a way to raise a kid. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, part of this book and, and a big part of all mystery these days is the fact that we live in a world we always expected Big Brother, not, I guess, 10,000 little brothers with cell phone cameras. And, yeah. and, and that everything is now recorded like automatically. It's just as a part of being done, it's the, all the details of this phone call, the data usage, everything, you know, all this stuff is somewhere in a box somewhere where you can get to it. You hope, but what one of the great aspects of this book is a sort of gaslighting that happens when people can get to those records and eliminate them, and then Mm -hmm. they're so because the records are so omnipresent and perfect and always there. When they're gone, you start to doubt yourself and doubt reality, and I think that that's a really interesting way to uh, to create tension. Yeah, that's uh, thanks. Um, I, you know, I wanted to bring that up because, um, you know, as you mentioned, we don't really expect 10,000 little brothers. And we have this strange, I, I feel like we have this strange impulse as human beings to trust the records and to trust, trust, trust what's written down, right? And the whole concept of history and who makes it. Um, and and, and <laughs> we don't. Right, right. <laughs> But, but when we don't have that, you do start to question yourself. Like I've definitely had those moments where I can't find a memo or something that I know I've written. And I'm like, wait, what, what happened? <laughs> um, and it's just abject panic. And when you find the document, you're fine. <laughs> but, but if you don't, it can mm-hmm. really cause you to question your memory. And if you're already in a fragile mental state for other reasons, it can be really crushing and really debilitating. Um, now, obviously, here in Little Falls, it, it's it's not clear who's messing with Camille. I don't know. <laughs> Do you? Um, does the reader? Um, does she? Um, exactly. And, and so the the idea is that um, it may be that nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Maybe she just doesn't remember. Now, one I'll read a, a little paragraph which you wrote here. Mm-hmm. Every dream gave me more pieces, but the mm-hmm. images that were so vivid in the dead of night were lost during the day. I had mm-hmm. filled the pages of a notebook with everything. I remembered from Iraq and from Afghanistan, from every place I had ever been in, with a helicopter and an M-16, but there was nothing there, nothing that dragged up the memories that haunted me in the dark. I'd like you to talk about the part that dreams play in your character's work and do they play a part in your writing and 
do they play a part in your compartmentalization and in in Camille's? They do. Um, I, at the risk of sounding sort of woo-woo, um, I think dreams happen because they, at night, we let down our guard, right? When we're asleep, we let down our guard and, and our mind can want our minds can wander a bit. And so a lot of that stuff I think comes out in dreams. You know, they, they say that there's always a meaning to a dream. I, I, that might be pushing it a little too far, but, but I think that there's always some grain of truth in a dream. So, um, something, and, and maybe that's emotional. So for example, for years, years, I had, um, a recurring nightmare about being up high and falling. And, and so that's not all that unusual, right? A lot of people have falling dreams, but for me, it was a symptom of, of both sort of being worried about whether or not I was, um, being perfect enough, right? Perfectionism. But it was also, um, when I was 15, I stupidly jumped out of a window that I thought was a lot closer to the ground than it was, (laughs) um, (laughs) and got pretty badly injured. Um, and so, um, you know, so it, it's sort of those, that, that experience combined with other things. For Camille, when she is asleep, the walls can come down. And it, it can come down a little bit more safely, right? Because, because dreams are, aren't real. So we're, so we're supposed to think. Um, and so the, the idea that a lot of these, a lot of these experiences came out in her dreams I think is is something that many of us experience those grains of truth, and in her in her experience, right? It, most of the dreams were a lot more realistic, but there are always there's always a grain of truth, and and if you pay attention, and if you think about what that grain of truth is, you can actually discover a lot of things about yourself, um, and and also and also hopefully piece together past experiences. Now, I I don't want to push that too far, right? Because dreams are not necessarily um truth but 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 there is an element um and so so as far as compartmentalization is concerned right i mentioned with dreams i feel like it's it's safer for the walls to come down that's very much true for camille but but readers will notice and and i'm sure you noticed that those dreams sort of dribble right um it's not all at once um, and so I think that's that's consistent with my research about compartmentalization is, you know, when when folks can process what it is they have compartmentalized, it usually takes time and work and effort in order to figure out, you know, let's let's go back to that memory and let's process it and let's get through it um, without, you know, sort of destroying the mind. I think the mind wants to protect itself. Right. And mm. And so tries that's the whole point of compartmentalization right and so i think that's also part of part of the reason why folks who do deal with traumatic events you know a trained a trained counselor doesn't (laughs) they don't just drop it on you all at once and they don't they don't force you to go in there all at once um it's sort of a it's a process so and i think um camille has has had other things happen (laughs) to her that I, that I hope to explore in later books, um, which I'm writing right now. Um, and so dreams will continue to play a part for her. You know, one of the things that helps us get along with one another with ourselves and, and can help us in, in 
exploring the world around us, the people in the world around us, is what uh, is called theory of mind, mm-hmm. which is I know my feelings and I'm, I make a model of somebody else out there, you, for example, and I think, well, she's thinking this about me. Uh-huh. And then depending on how many, how complicated a, a human being are, you can say, well, I'm thinking this about what she's thinking about me, and she's thinking this, and you can go, at, I think the highest level is maybe seven, and, and I can't even get much past <laughs> two. But I think this is a really key element of mysteries as the characters try to understand one another, make models of the people that are around them that are that are flawed and what's really fun in mysteries is when the character makes a model of somebody around them that is flawed but the reader can tell that uh, <laughs> they've made whoops <laughs> bad call there so yeah, talk, right? talk about using that kind of uh how the the models of the people around us um can be used as plot elements in a mystery hmm that's interesting. I think it's um, that's an interesting observation. I think um, you know back to some of the sort of classic mysteries like Agatha Christie and so forth, and and how like you're like, well, you shouldn't trust that that event or or that interpretation or that behavior or whatever. Um, uh, it's interesting. Um, so one of the things that I I don't like about some of the older mysteries is is when the reader can't see those things, and then we have the big reveal at the end, mm-hmm. like like Sherlock Holmes, right? Well, I could tell this because of X, Y, and Z, which weren't really apparent to the reader. Um, so I think it's, I think it's helpful, um, uh, particularly in first person POV, um, to include those more human elements. Um, and that is definitely one of those key ones for, for Camille, right? So little falls is told in first person mm-hmm. and, and Camille is very much guilty of that, of what you just described sort of, um, evaluating what other people might or might not be thinking and then jumping to conclusions. Um, I think it helps to deepen the, the experience that the reader has by, by deepening the, the um, personality, shall we say, of the, the narrator and then also different characters. Um, it, it helps to avoid um, tropes mm. and stereotypical characters. Um, um that's one of the things I, I really liked about this book is the characters all seem very authentic and, and you know, part of their own milieu. They don't seem created to, to unfold the mystery. They're just there. And once the first element of the mystery is introduced, the rest kind of follow from it as, mm-hmm. as your character pursues it. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I think... The, the key about this particular murder, of course, is because Camille does have some sort somewhat unique knowledge, right? She's Sophie was connected to the victim. And so Sophie does provide some information, whether wittingly or not. Um, and Camille, because what happened resembles something that happened when she was in the army, can can make some informed guesses. but but ultimately, she's, she's trying to it's not about one of those those highfalutin sort of justice goals it, mm. it's really about camille wanting to quiet her head 
Exactly. Right. I, uh, and which is something a lot of us are wanting to do these days. There's because <laughs> there's so much. That's pretty much the only place where things can be going on. Oh yeah, indeed. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I think. Um, but but for Camille, right, and and for a lot of people who have experienced trauma, um, trying to shove those things back into a box becomes sort of the end all be all. And that's why we see folks, um, I'm just going to use combat veterans as an, as an example, right? That's why we see such high rates of suicide. They can't, they can't get it back into the box. Mm. Or, or, they can't, or they can't figure out how to cope as a civilian after experiencing those kinds of trauma. Because it's, you know, it's one of the things that, that bugs me, um, I'm not alone in this, but there are differences of opinion in the veteran community. One of the things that bugs me is when people just sort of toss out, thank you for your service. Hmm. It just, it, it feels really cheap a lot of the time. Cause it's like, on the one hand, like, look, buddy, you could have been listed too. It's thoughts and prayers. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and on the other hand, it's like, well, okay, sure. Thank you for your service. Now, what are you going to do about it? You're going to fund the VA? <laughs> Good, good point. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so I think you know we've 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 seen in the last couple of years, particularly a huge rash of veteran suicides, and a lot of that's preceded by drug and alcohol abuse, as well as other instances of of I'll just say acting out, even though that really minimizes the issue. Um, and but without help, a lot of those people end up in this state of despair that ultimately ends in suicide. So um, I'm not quite sure where I was going with that, but, <laughs> um, but it is an important point to bring out, I think. You know, um, when you, you're starting a series, and, and I can't wait to find out what Camille gets up to next, uh, <laughs> there, I think one of the things that you, that interests me is, is, you know, how people choose the occupation of their main character and a property <laughs> tax because the, the traditional idea of a detective is that they can talk to the, to the beggar and they can talk to the king on an equal footing. Mm-hmm. And, and so the property tax inspector uh, gets a pretty good chunk of that right there. So talk about creating... Camille as a character that you want to write more than one story about. Oh, sure. Um, I think her career is the least of her, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, property tax inspector is helpful because it, it helps you to gain some access. It, it's funny. The, the idea for a main character, an amateur sleuth as a property tax inspector was originates when I was doing some diligence for a deal for work and I was looking at some property tax returns and I noticed that the address for paying your property tax in upstate New York was just some dude's house. <laughs> I was just like, what? <laughs> um, and it, apparently in New York, it's pretty common to have the um, property tax collector who also does some inspection, I guess, um, uh, just be someone in the community. Um, and so it occurred to me, well, you know, people who go out and check on property tax like meets and bounds and permits and so forth, they probably see some weird stuff. <laughs> um, so 
and it conveniently also gives her a little bit more access, right? She has some access to county records um, because um, Darren Moses, the sergeant, the the sheriff's sergeant, who's in who's in charge of the case, um, is an old school friend of hers. She can badger him for information, although um, you'll see in the book she didn't get much out of him. Um, and she does have some access to other records, although not legally. Um, it's again, it's through a buddy. It's through the old veterans network, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so she has some, she has more insight than for example, um, you know, the average person on the street would have, but she doesn't have the insight that a police officer would have, which I think is interesting. I, you know, as a civilian, um, not law enforcement, I should say, um, I really like the mysteries and the puzzles. That's why I'm a tax lawyer. Mm. And um, it's also probably to do with the fact that I grew up on English mysteries. Um, and and so creating a character that I would want to continue with, you know, part of that was the veteran element, right? Um, I think that women veterans are an underexplored sort of character in mm. fiction. And, and when they are used, I've noticed, and this really bothers me, but I've noticed they tend to not be written by veterans. Mm. They tend to not be written by women, <laughs> well, <laughs> which is a little galling to that's, me. That's doubly problematic. Yeah, right? Um, so not that they're not well-written characters. That's not the point. Mm. But the point is is you, you start to ask yourself, um, how good of a character is this really? <laughs> um, so, um, so the veteran element was very much key for me, but also – Camille has unplumbed depths and she she has a lot of problems that are not that unusual in the veteran community. Um, so there's a lot of material there. <laughs> um, and then in the second book that I'm writing right now, and, you know, God willing, it will be picked up for publication. Um, uh, she's she's not working as an inspector anymore. She's on admin leave. Um and so she's lost that element of access, which is really frustrating for her. Um, and and she has to deal with it and, and yet still go out and solve the case, right? So I, I like the amount of material that I have with her. And I hope that, you know, ultimately um, she's, she's going to get better. Ultimately, mm. she's going to work some of this stuff out. But, you know, I wouldn't be a good author if I didn't destroy her life in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, uh, these books are, are. This book is extremely well written, and Thank I'm you. just curious if you you talk about um, perfecting your prose while um, doing the work you do uh, to <laughs> <laughs> to keep the lights on. <laughs> uh, it's that's really funny, um, <laughs> and I'll explain why. <laughs> Um, I wrote my first novel when I was 10. It's Mm. awful. It's absolutely (laughs) awful. Um, my dad still has a copy of it somewhere in a box. Um, but it's, it's pretty bad. Um, (laughs) and when I was in law school, I had a legal writing professor my first year Mm. who was like, you write like a fiction writer. You need to fix that. (laughs) So I fixed it. (laughs) Um, and, and eventually got better as, as a legal writer. But, but one thing that I've learned as a lawyer um is that bad lawyers write like lawyers 
Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> after practicing for, I don't know, three or four years, um, it, it occurred to me that no one understood what the hell I was trying to say. <laughs> um, because, you know, when you're writing for a client, it, it's just like when you're a fiction writer, you have to think about who your audience is, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so when I'm writing, I do a lot of renewable energy work as a tax lawyer. And um, when I'm writing for someone who is the type of person who goes out and puts panels into a field, they don't have the same technical expertise as their general counsel. And so I have to very much tailor my writing. And so for a lot of these folks, I am pulling on a lot of the fiction writing skills, honestly, because mm. I'm trying to I'm trying to translate the law into something that is sensible for their business. And as a fiction writer, I'm trying to translate that, that raw emotion mm -hmm. and, and the visuals and, and so many other things into the written word that can then turn around and convey all of those things into the brain of my reader. Um, so I think one of my favorite authors for that, for that purpose, oddly, is Terry Pratchett. Um, mm. he was, um, one of the reasons why I love his books is because if you read them, well, for me anyway, when I read them, I have a very, very, very clear idea of what Discworld, his, you know, his world looks like and feels mm. like and smells like. But if you look at the words that he uses, they're actually fairly spare. Um, he, he highlights just a few things, just enough to help you form an image. And that's why, you know, um, uh, my, my junior associate who I work with is also a big fan of Terry Pratchett. He thinks of Discworld rather differently than I do. Mm. And, and that's the show of strength of Pratchett's writing, I think. Oh yeah. Pratchett. Because He's yeah. An amazing writer. Yeah. He pulls on, he pulls things out of the reader's head. He doesn't shove them there. Exactly. What yeah. an interesting observation. That's true. That's, well, that's what you do as well. I've Thank been you. speaking with Elizabeth Luz. Her first novel is Little Falls featuring Camille Warish. We look forward to the next one. Elizabeth, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Rick. Really appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.